Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Uh, returning guest new to this program, but we've talked before on radio and other media, Sarah Montalbano, another Young Voices contributor. She's up in Montana, beautiful God's country up there. She's written all over the place, Wall Street Journal, Washington Examiner, uh, has done work with the Alaska Policy Institute. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Uh, sick like you've been sick because we've been trying to do this for about two <laughs> weeks now and finally got it on the books because we she was sick, then I was sick, and then she was sick, and then one of my kids was sick. So thank you for your patience, mm-hmm. ma'am. Uh, let's just start right there. Uh, you were writing in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, you were part of a, a symposium, I guess you would call it, um, of college students. I don't think we've talked enough uh, in this COVID pandemic about the college age kids. L- let me do a little background here real quick. We've spent a lot of uh, characters and in ink for the last decade or so about the generation that went through college during the housing crisis in 08, 09, uh, 2010, and how those folks who are now in their 30s and closer to their 40s, how that crisis affected them. I really wonder with two years of COVID, the college age generation right now, how that's going to affect them going forward, both in their politics and their culture and how they see things. I, I don't see any way that wouldn't be a major effect on them, is there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I went into college in 2018. I had one normal year, and then I had two COVID years, and now we're finally just starting to get back to normal, but we still have to wear masks. I think most college students are over it at this point, uh, including myself. What do you think, um, because college is a formative experience, uh, everybody still has that kind of classical, oh, you go live in the dorms for two or three years, that kind of thing in their head. We understand college is much more diversified now with online learning, hybrid learning, these things. But that time period, that 20 to 25, 18 to 24 time frame, it is formative. What do you see in your you know, age group cohort? What do you see that they are learning from this COVID thing, how it's changing their worldview, not just politics, but just their worldview in general, because this has to have had a massive effect. Absolutely. I think the thing I've noticed most is that people are uncomfortable talking to strangers. They stay very close to their friend group or the people they know in their classes, and they are just not willing to embrace the college experience anymore if it's not something that can be guaranteed to be safe from COVID. I think all the fun things that universities do have just been really awful with COVID adaptations. And I personally don't feel like I got as much out of the learning experience because we've been getting a break for two years, really. Um, Just just not rigorous standards anymore. And I'm really worried about what uh, people going into the workforce after this from this kind of college experience. I'm worried about that. What do, what do you think? Uh, 
let's let's back up a little bit. When the we understand when the pandemic first started, like nobody knew what was going on. So we had a lot of shutdowns and they pull people out of class, all this. Especially on college campuses, there seemed to be a real attitude of we have to do something even before they really had the data and the science catching up. And I understand why, because there's a lot of money involved. Uh, these are big budget institutions that are very thin budgets, despite the big dollar signs when you have to shut them down. We know enrollments are dropping. There's the greater thing of the education, higher education bubble. We keep waiting to maybe burst in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things kind of combined here. What is it, do you think, was it a mix of the just do something crowd? Was it overbearing? Was it some people not doing enough? How did it come off from the administrations of the schools? Maybe not your school in particular, but you can go there if you want to. How did that come across to the students, the college age kids of how their immediate, the people that are in charge of them, because it's a college environment, how they handled this crisis in the beginning? Yeah, I think a lot of students feel cheated out of a normal college experience right now. And that's the case for more than, you know, 400 institutions that are requiring COVID vaccines in order to attend. A lot of students feel like they don't have any choice in completing their education if they don't want this, or they might feel coerced a little bit into it. My university has actually been very understanding. Um, We've had a mask mandate of course, uh, as most institutions have, uh, but there's not really been any talk of of vaccine mandates. And the campus has tried to be very normal. Uh, I think a lot of colleges are putting classes online when they shouldn't be just because now they know they can. Um, But my university's tried very hard to keep classes in person. How does that, how has that been landing with the students though? Because we all know uh, the pushback on that is always, well, you already have a laundry list of vaccines you have to be up to date on to attend college, the same as with uh, secondary school, K through 12. What is it about this specific one? Was it the speed of it? Was it just that it's a new thing? Um, it's college kids. Was there just a little element of rebellion in there, which is normal <laughs> for that age group? What do you think it was that they had a pause about that? Because, And is it really as much of an issue as we're talking about online? Because it seems like that may be something that's getting talked about more than it's actually getting acted on. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, I think a lot of college students, of course, want to rebel a little bit against this. Um, but I think also a lot of them, you know, I've heard stories from people who took the first and second COVID vaccines and had some unpleasant side effects and didn't want to continue to boost in order to continue their education. And now that's, you know, the policy of most administrators is to say, well, you took the first one. Uh, so, you know, you're, we're going to need to see doctor's notes and medical exemptions and stuff like that. Um, I think it's probably not as big of an issue as the internet is is making it out to be. Um, But I think for a lot of college students, it's a very real concern because they've entered into this college experience, a lot of us before COVID, and um, we would just like a normal experience. Yeah, talking to Sarah Montalbano, another of the great young voices, contributors we get to work with. Um, Staying on the college campus thing for just a second, when you wrote about it in the Wall Street Journal, You made an interesting point, I thought, about talking about personal responsibility when it comes to COVID. There's been a conversation with higher ed in general about what they actually teach you. And I don't mean in the classroom. I mean, culturally, how to get along with people structurally, which is a big part of college, you know, learning how to live on your own. Did universities, in your opinion, 
did they do a good job of using this as a teachable moment for personal responsibilities or was it just so much reaction and scattershot that you think people might've been turned off on, Hey, the people in charge of us might not really know what they're doing. They just seem to be flailing a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think for most college students, it's the latter. Uh, It really seems like there's just a push to do something rather than, you know, considering it. Uh, My university actually had a very funny moment before the fall 2021 semester. Um, The university president asked everybody in a mass email and said, we're not going to mandate wearing masks. We're just asking that you do this in all the classrooms. And I think from my observation, it was about 50-50. And we, uh, for the first two days, and then a mask mandate was instituted the next day. And so I think what universities are trying to do is avoid having to make these decisions for students, but the students at this point kind of either need to be told to do it or won't do it at all. We'll follow their personal preferences. You used a real old school term in your Wall Street Journal article, and I love it because it's a good country term. I knew I understood <laughs> it immediately. Busybody administrators. Um mm-hmm. The thing about these administrators, though, and it's it's only fair to bring up for folks is these students, they're spending tens of thousands of dollars. They're going into debt. Uh, they feel pressure to be at these institutions. How much does the overall environment of higher education right now play into when you have a, in your words, busybody administrator that seems to be doing a whole lot of do something without a whole lot of accomplishing? Mm-hmm. There's so much resentment, I think, on campuses right now because students came in expecting a normal college experience, were promised this in some cases, saying, no, we'll be back in person. And then with this Omicron variant thing, a lot of schools have gone back online, and that's very frustrating for people putting themselves into debt. Um, and it just really feels like babysitting. It feels like the administrators know what they want us to do and are going to make us do it, whether we like it or not. And we're not going to get a normal college experience. Um, yeah, it, it's they're busy bodies. Yeah, I stand and, by that. <laughs> and they're not giving you a discount either for the lessening of service, but that's another matter no. for another day. Uh, <laughs> we'll take a quick break. We're talking to Sarah Montalbano from Young Voices, uh, a college student and a published author, Wall Street Journal and other places. We get back. We're going to talk about another piece she wrote about DUIs and continue to talk about COVID right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're continuing our conversation with Sarah Montalbano up in God's country in Montana, uh, where I'm betting it's not very warm today. Uh, no, she just kind of shook her head. <laughs> 14 degrees. It, oh, it was it. snowing all night. <laughs> 14 is not a bad day up there, though, for not this time bad. of the year, though. No. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we went through Cheyenne in the middle of a winter one time. It was like negative 20 with the wind chills. It's ridiculous. Oh. Um, <laughs> You have written a piece. uh, It was a while back, but I think it's worth bringing back up uh, for the American Spectator. Uh, You were talking about the government in your car. Now, let's preface something. DUI is a horrible, awful thing. Um, We could talk all day about the criminal justice system, letting people on the streets that have three, four, five, seven DUIs. It's absolutely Uh atrocious. Nobody wants DUIs. Nobody wants anybody on the road under the influence. However, in the infrastructure bill, they are now using technology in vehicles. Uh, Just set this up for folks. What was actually in the infrastructure bill, what was passed, what it's supposed to do, 
and the idea of what they wanted to accomplish before we get into what we think it might or might not accomplish. For sure. Yeah. Obviously, do you guys are horrible. Uh, we don't want to see this. Um, the infrastructure bill passed a section, Advanced Impaired Driving Technology. Uh, it basically directs the Secretary of Transportation to issue a rule within three years that requires advanced impaired driving technology in all new vehicles. Um, in the language basically says either it can passively and accurately detect blood alcohol concentration, or it can passively monitor the performance of a driver. That's about the extent of what the bill actually says, and it leaves the implementation details up to the Secretary of Transportation. Yeah, now having with what we do, we read a lot of these bills. Uh, that's a <laughs> lot of wordy word, we call it. Uh, that's a lot of open-ended <laughs> hey, we would like for this thing here to happen, which legally doesn't have a whole lot of binding. Um, <laughs> what's the danger of this going forward? Or is this just kind of a, gee, this would be nice sort of piece of legislation that doesn't really have any teeth in it? Because when you get to the letter of the law, there is no letter of the law to the way this is specifically written. But clearly, <laughs> this is uh, kind of a marker for what they want to kind of go for in the future, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. And, and they're kind of punting it down the road a few years. Um, the Secretary of Transportation is supposed to issue a rule about the actual technology that is supposed to be included uh, within three years. And then I believe automakers have three years after that in order to actually implement the technology and put it into new cars. Uh, and so that could be as early as 2026. Uh, it could also be punted down the road for 10 years. And the Secretary of Transportation can say, uh, Congress, here's why we haven't been able to do this. The technology is just not there yet. And I think that's probably the best case scenario uh, for this kind of law. Now, the ambiguity here isn't just in the letter of the law, as we're kind of mm -hmm. facetiously calling it here. Um, <laughs> law has to be written specifically. And when it comes to impairment, uh, there mm -hmm. is no federal universal standard for impairment. Some places it's 0.5, some places it's 0.8, some places it's lower. Uh, this is also a part of this problem is how are you going to have technology, which is data code? It has to be very specific. Uh, mm -hmm. The laws themselves for impairment aren't going to fit nice and neat into programming, are they? No, no, exactly. Like if I was going to try and drive to Washington in my car right now, I would pass through Idaho, which might have a different law. I would start in Montana, end up in Washington. That's three different kinds of laws. And so what I see happening is kind of a federalization of these kind of standards if this law uh, comes into effect. And then I think, secondly, we need to remember that impairment doesn't just mean drunk. Uh, it could be, you know, being drowsy or intoxicated by other substances, distracted, eating, using your cell phone, stuff like that. And those all have different laws applying to them, although obviously you should do none of them. Um, but th this technology could really have some strong practical implementation problems. Yeah. And you talk about uh, talking to Sarah Montalbano. This is a piece about uh, the in-car technology, tracking technology for DUI and other things that she wrote in American Spectator a while back. Uh, I didn't think of it this way, but I guess I should have. Anytime we're talking technology, of course, we're talking privacy concerns. You bring up an interesting point here is uh, there's a car and there's a driver and then there's the rules of the road, which is the government's. So you have three different distinct entities here. Who owns that data of you driving on the road? Is it you? Is it the car manufacturer? Is it the car because you own it? Or is it the road that the state or the federal government own? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really scary. And who gets to access that data? Uh, you know, can will there be permanent logs? And and this is the kind of thing I worry about as a computer science major. I understand that it's pretty easy to exploit software vulnerabilities. And I think the fact that these logs will be, there will be data collected by this software. Um, and that could be available to enterprising hackers. It could be available to law enforcement and the government. Uh, your automaker was probably getting it too. And you're probably the person that's going to be least able to view your data. Yeah. And talking to Sarah Montalbana, you brought up a comparison here that I wouldn't have thought of when it comes to your vehicle, but it made sense once I started thinking about it. But you talked about the ring doorbells and the fact that you have uh, now we've had situations uh, with police and law enforcement where they want the data from the ring doorbells. Uh, I remember the murder case. I think it was about two years ago. Remember the the death in the hot tub and the uh, it was Alexa or Siri. I forget which one. I think it was Alexa. Mm-hmm. Uh, recorded the whole thing and they wanted that data. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of implications for law enforcement, which already has problems with uh, behaving themselves when it comes to search and seizure and data information collection. This seems like something that's going to open a lot of doors for law enforcement that's not going to have a whole lot of guardrails on it, at least at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think what's most likely for the actual technology implemented is some form of camera trained on your face, watching for droopy eyes and eyelids, um, things like that, uh, combined with your actual driving behavior. Are you going outside of the line stuff like that? Um, and I think it's law enforcement would love to have a camera trained on every driver's face that they could access. And by its very necessity, this camera would have to be on all the time and could not be turned off. Um, and that's the kind of thing I think uh, is really scary, especially with the ring door cameras. The law enforcement has already shown themselves really enthusiastic to uh, get this information from cameras. This goes to a bigger question, but you are a computer science person. So I'm going to go ahead and mm-hmm. just go there with you. Uh, we we are getting ready to have a debate in our society about identity. This is really getting down when you're talking about this camera is, do you own your own face? Do you own your mm-hmm. own identity? Um, so of course they'll say, well, this is, this is going to stop DUIs. We all want that. We've already predicated that, but Mm -hmm. do you have a right to not be videoed? And that's something that in our society, we're getting really close to needing to have a reckoning on. And I don't think people really recognize that, that I know I tell my kids, I have teenagers and adult children. Now I tell like, Mm -hmm. if you're not at the house, if you're out in public, just assume you're being recorded because that's the world we Mm -hmm. live in. But we haven't had that conversation as a society yet, have we, of do you own your own face and do you have a right to not be videoed yet? Because this is where all this technology is going one way or the other, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's a rich debate. And you can probably guess what side of that I fall on. But as a computer scientist, you have to think, like, is, is an image of your face an agglomeration of pixels? Is it a stream of bits and bytes that just form your image? Or is this something more philosophically important than that? Is this just substantially and fundamentally different from any other sort of data that's collected about you? I think uh, digital identity is going to be something that uh, people that concern themselves with freedom and security and privacy rights, uh, I think that's the front line for the next, probably the last next decade or so. So we'll definitely <laughs> continue to talk about that. Sarah Montalbano, let folks know where they can find you. Uh, we cited your work in the Wall Street Journal, American Spectator here, but let them know your social media and what else you have going on. 
Absolutely. Uh, I am, uh, you can find my contributor page on the Young Voices website. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter under um, at Sarah Montalbano, the O is a zero. Um, and you can also find my work as research associate on the Alaska Policy Forum website. They're a really wonderful organization if you are at all interested in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah, we had a great conversation with her about uh, things like road rights in uh, mm -hmm. public lands and uh, oil things and things in Alaska. Great stuff. Sarah Montalbano, uh, thank you for the time. Thank you for the patience of waiting till we were both not sick anymore to talk about <laughs> COVID because that's just how the world works now. Um, and uh, you stay warm up there. We appreciate your time. We'll definitely have you back, ma'am. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.